You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to welcome Casper to the SpyCast family. Casper is changing the way people shop for mattresses. You'll hear more about them later, but first let's meet our guest. Joined today by James Acton, who is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A physicist by training, he was the winner of the Competitive Carnegie Corporation of New York grant on new technologies in the nuclear threat that funds his ongoing research into the escalation implications of advanced conventional weapons. His publications span the field of nuclear policy. He recently published a Carnegie report, Wagging the Plutonium Dog, Japanese Domestic Politics and Its International Security Implications, and is the author of two Adelphi books, Deterrence During Disarmament, Deep Nuclear Reductions, and International Security and Abolishing Nuclear Weapons with George Perkovich. He wrote with Mark Hibbs, Why Fukushima Was Preventable, a groundbreaking study into the root causes of the accident. His analysis on proliferation threats, including Iran and North Korea, has been widely disseminated by major journals, newspapers, and websites. An expert on hypersonic conventional weapons and the author of the Carnegie Report, Silver Bullet, Asking the Right Questions About Conventional Prompt Global Strike, he's testified on this subject to the U.S. House of Representatives Armed Services Committee and the congressionally chartered U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He's a member of the Nuclear Security Working Group. He's a former member of the Commission on Challenges to Deep Cuts and was co-chair of the Next Generation Working Group on U.S.-Russia Arms Control. He has published in the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, Foreign Affairs, and lots of other things that I'm not going to list because it would take half the day. You can also find him on TV every so often. He's appeared on CNN State of the Union, NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News, and PBS NewsHour. James, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to start broadly and then work our way yep. into specifics. Can I talk a little bit about um, how can this overlaps a little bit with intelligence mm -hmm. and with some of the stuff that we do. So I want to start with talking about the international system as it's designed today to try to prevent proliferation. Is it set up, a basic straightforward question, you can wax philosophical all you want on this, is it set up in such a way to deter proliferation? Do, do we have the necessary resources, whether it's the IAEA or other UN-based groups, to stop proliferators? Well, let's talk a bit about mm -hmm. how the system is set up. Um, the cornerstone of the system uh, is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, which was a treaty that was uh, originally concluded in 1968. So, in fact, we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of that treaty. Uh, that's like every international treaty. That's an opt-in system. States don't have to be members of the treaty. Um, but as of today, uh, all but five countries in the world are members of the treaty. 
Uh, and basically that treaty divides into uh, nuclear weapon states, uh, who are the five uh, permanent members of the Security Council, um, the US, Russia, France, the UK and China. Uh, and then everyone else who are non-nuclear weapon states, and those non-nuclear weapon states have promised in the treaty not to acquire nuclear weapons. Um, now, they get various, uh, they're supposed to get various benefits for being part of the treaty. Um, but, in, you know, to, to, to answer your question, one of the obligations they have to accept is the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, safeguards all of their nuclear activities to make sure that they're not turned from um, uh, peaceful uses into military uses. And in a way, the link with intelligence comes in because, um, you know, historically, since the beginning of the nuclear age, uh, national intelligence agencies in the US and elsewhere have tried to find out um, um, what um, other countries are doing with their, with their nuclear programs to assess whether or not they're trying to proliferate. Um, and essentially what the International Atomic Energy Agency does, if you like, in very general terms, is a legalized, official, permitted version of what intelligence agencies have otherwise tried to be doing. Now, in the case of the International Atomic Energy Agency, you get inspectors who are there on the ground, literally measuring quantities of nuclear material to make sure none of it's been converted into a, um, a or, or sorry, diverted, I should say, from a peaceful program into a military program. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency checks to make sure there aren't secret facilities in these states. Um, now, spies, intelligence agencies can't get that form of on-the-ground access. Mm -hmm. um, they may be using sources of information such as um, uh, signals intercepts, electronics intelligence, that the International Atomic Energy Agency doesn't have access to. So, you know, there are important differences between what the agency does, the IEA, and what national intelligence agencies do. But it's kind of like if you stop and you pause and you think about it, it's kind of an extraordinary arrangement, the MPT and the IAEA, that sovereign states allow international inspectors to crawl around sensitive facilities to make sure they're not building bombs. I mean, it's, actually, it's kind of remarkable that that system exists at all. Um, in terms of how effective it's been, um, there's a lot of debate about that. It's kind of at one level I would tell you it's an unanswerable question. Um, and another level, I would tell you that I think on balance, the evidence, while you know, being hard to assess, says the system has worked pretty well. Um, you know, if you go back to the 1960s when John F. Kennedy was president, he, you know, there were predictions at the time that within 20 or 30 years, there would be 20 or 30 nuclear weapon states. Um, today, there's nine states with nuclear weapons. I think part of that I think part of the fact that proliferation has proceeded at a much slower rate than anticipated is because of the International Atomic Energy Agency. How much, you talk about how the spy agencies and the IAEA mm -hmm. have kind of different ways of doing this. How much joint cooperation is there between IAEA and the intelligence agencies? Is there sharing of intelligence information? Um, are, are countries... Uh, like the United States and Russia with their technological prowess using things like measurements and signatures intelligence, you know, high-level sensors, everything else. Are they sharing the information with the UN and with, with the IAEA? Um, that's a great question and an incredibly topical one that's really a heated issue right now. Um, the statute of the IAEA, the governing document that created the IAEA, specifically gives the IAEA the right to receive information from member states. 
that if member states have information they think might be helpful, which may very well come from intelligence agencies, they're allowed to give that to the IEA. The IEA is not allowed to give anything back to spy agencies. Okay, it's a one-way. It's a one-way yeah. street. Now, this spy provision, you know, this this use of intelligence information by the IEA, to my knowledge, and you know, there may be a secret history here. I don't know about. To my knowledge, the first time this was used was after the uh, first Iraq War in 1991, when. Um, you know, after the end of the war, it was discovered that Iraq had this huge clandestine nuclear weapons program that was, you know, maybe a year, two years, something like that, away from building the bomb, and the IEA was sent in to dismantle it. And intelligence agencies started to provide uh, member states with, uh, the US in particular, with information to help those inspectors. Uh, and there's a story, I, I think it was by, um, I think uh, the, the, the a US official handed, I think it was... Probably Rolf Achaeus was director of the IEA at the time, but I may have that wrong. Um, U-2 satellite photos, hmm. which had been partially blurred out. And Achaeus ripped them up and threw them in the bin because he just said these were terrible resolution and not helpful. And the next day, much higher resolution <laughs> imagery arrived. So that was, you know, that was the very first use, to my knowledge. And since then, this has been used on you know, in, uh, member states, some member states. I suspect largely the US and a number of European states have on occasion provided the IEA with intelligence information, uh, including, for instance, over the investigation of the Iranian nuclear mm -hmm. program. Um, now, what the IEA, and this is very controversial, there are a number of states out there who, for various reasons, are deeply opposed to this practice, actually led by the Russians, as it happens. And what they would say is, you know, for all we know, the US is setting up the IEA. Right. Uh, this is, um, um, you know, the, um, um, how, how do we know this information is, 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 is true and accurate? What the IEA says is, well, we vet all the information very carefully. We never go on intelligence information alone. It's only one of many sources of information that we have, all of which we integrate. Um, but this is a deeply, deeply controversial issue. And there is a, you know, the Russians in particular are leading a charge in the Board of Governors, which is the, 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 the political body that oversees the IEA, to try to stamp down on the use of intelligence. And the IEA Secretariat, the professionals who run the organization, say, no, no, this is a useful inf source of information. We want to be able to use this. So this is actually a very, very hot mm -hmm. topic at the moment. What about the five non-signature states of the NPT? Uh, what do we do about them? I mean, obviously, you don't have the access to the IAEA. Is it, are we entirely dependent on intelligence to follow along what their programs mm -hmm. are doing? Well, so one of them is kind of a special case. That's South Sudan, which mm -hmm. only became independent a few years ago. Um, we believe, you know, when, when you're a poor African state right. that becomes independent, you probably have bigger priorities than signing up to the MPT. So, you know, nobody seriously regards South Sudan as a proliferation concern. Next category is North Korea. Uh, North Korea um, signed the MPT um, and is the only state ever to with have withdrawn from the MPT. Um, and, um, you know, North Korea is um, arguably, you know, one of the failures of the MPT. Though personally, you know, North Korea had a nuclear weapons program before it joined the MPT. The IEA uncovered that program as part of initial inspections. Um, and then I would argue it was the political process that failed rather than the IEA when North Korea then marched out of the treaty. 
In any case, you know, since North Korea left the treaty, IEA inspectors have been back there periodically when we've negotiated deals with the North Koreans, uh, but they haven't been there for a number of years. And in North Korea, we are very largely reliant on intelligence information. Now, I say that one can learn a lot, for instance, from commercial satellite imagery about you know, the operation of North Korea's plutonium production reactor. Uh, you get beautiful imagery that shows that reactor producing steam um, or where hot water from coming out of the reactor that's been used to cool the reactor has melted ice in the river next door to it. Mm. Um, that's exactly the kind of stuff right. intelligence agencies are doing with, 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 with non-commercial imagery. But you know, there is a growing um, 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 industry of using commercial satellite imagery to, to learn at an unclassified level some of what North Korea is up to. Uh, the blog 38 North does this extremely well and has some wonderful um, uh, analysis there. They do a lot of good open source stuff from photographs on everything yeah. from like official North Korea government photographs showing Kim Jong-un at nuclear tests and stuff and be able to figure out where he is exactly. based on the background. Uh, uh, geolocating him. Yeah. I mean, these guys are so good at that. Like, you know, he will be behind, there was a picture recently where he was behind a background clearly erected precisely to avoid people identifying where he was. But there was a tiny piece of the background yeah. was missing and you could see scenery behind it and people managed to yeah. work out where that test took place from. Um, so, you know, I think 38 North gives you a sense of what at least part of the intelligence analysis of, of North Korea would be like. Um, and then you get the three states that never signed the MPT, India, Israel and Pakistan. Uh, all of which have nuclear weapons. India and Pakistan openly acknowledge their possession of nuclear weapons. Uh, Israel is believed to have nuclear weapons, but has never openly acknowledged its possession of nuclear weapons. As it happens, there are IAEA inspectors in each of those three countries, uh, but only for very, very specific sites. The IAEA actually has a number of roles, and one of those roles is if, uh, which predates the MPT. I mean, I should have mentioned this before, but the IAEA was set up before the MPT. And the re one of the reasons why, one of its early roles was pre the MPT, if, say, the U.S. sold a nuclear reactor to Japan, um, the U.S. wanted there to be an international agency to make sure that that particular reactor was not used for military purposes. Mm -hmm. And so predating the MPT, the IEA was already uh, safeguarding particular facilities where safeguards were a condition of country A supplying it to country B. Those safeguards are still in effect on some facilities in India, Israel, and Pakistan, but obviously not the military facilities. Right. So on the military facilities, again, one is very largely reliant on, I mean, states would use intelligence information very heavily to know what's going on in those three countries. Um, but again, even at the unclassified level, one can, you know, there are some pretty credible estimates, for example, of how much fissile material those countries have produced, how much uranium or plutonium have been produced for weapons purposes. Again, one can find um, information, you know, if you know how roughly the power of a reactor, how long it's been operating for, you can come up with a reasonable guesstimate of how much plutonium it's produced. Um, much, much harder, even if you have a good handle on how much plutonium has been produced, much harder to estimate how many warheads have gone into right. that. Harder to estimate things like the explosive power, the yield of the warheads. Delivery systems, especially bigger ones, are a bit more uh, susceptible to imagery analysis and other forms of um, 
um, um, unclassified intelligence, if you like. Um, so the delivery system seems to be a key part of this picture, right? Mm -hmm. You can build a nuke all you want, but if you can't t put the nuke on target somewhere, um, you know, that really is essentially useless. I mean, isn't that what North Korea, the real focus at this point, and we know they have at least rudimentary nuclear weapons, is, is the ability of them to deliver them somewhere that would matter at this point? Yeah, I mean, there is a huge... Um, Unquestionably, one of the key technological barriers that North Korea wants to circumvent, and it probably hasn't done so, is developing an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the mainland of the United States. Um, and indeed, you know, the president has tweeted that it, um, that it won't happen. Um, so um, delivery systems are important, and they certainly increase the threat. I have to say, I'm a little bit heretical about this issue. And let me acknowledge that the view that I'm about to give you is certainly a minority view. I think when nuclear weapons are concerned, delivery systems are somewhat less important than people make out. You know, at the end of the day, North Korea has proven its ability to detonate a nuclear warhead. And in a real crisis or actual war with North Korea, which is unfortunately not, not unimaginable. Um, we would be worried, for instance, that the North Koreans might have stuck a nuclear weapon on a container ship. Mm -hmm. um, and even if that container ship couldn't reach the US, the fact that it could be detonated plausibly, perhaps, um, within striking distance of a US base in Japan or by the city of a US ally, I think would, be, would, would weigh on our minds during the crisis. So I think where nuclear weapons are concerned, even a small probability of them being used, even in a quite unconventional and militarily ineffective way, would still be a kind of deeply sobering thought for us in a right. crisis. Now, I'm certainly not claiming that if North Korea got ICBMs, that would make no difference to right. us. That would be an absurd thing to say. But I think the basic deterrent value from nuclear weapons happens with even a very rudimentary capability. Well, seeing that this is a possibility and perhaps even a probability that they'll have some kind of way of, of delivering a weapon in case of war, how much diplomacy is being used right now to prevent a Asian nuclear arms race, to keep South Korea from proliferating, to keep Japan from proliferating? Is that, I mean, that's been mentioned originally now President Trump said that would be a great idea, and then he walked mm -hmm. that back when people kind of pushed against that. Uh, but there, there, you already see Japan beginning, beginning to militarize conventionally more than they certainly have been allowed to do for the past 67 years. They could make a nuclear weapon in probably a week if they wanted to, based on their knowledge of physics and their fissile material they have. How likely, if... North Korea, and this is obviously hypothetical, mm -hmm. but if North Korea continues their march towards a more modern nuclear weapon system, mm -hmm. including delivery systems and everything else, how likely is it that we'll be able to prevent these other countries from proliferating? Mm -hmm. So um, in, in both countries, South Korea and Japan, there are serious people who advocate acquiring nuclear weapons as a policy option. 
In Japan, that conversation is a very small conversation. There is a tiny, like, it is only a small number of people, influential people, who consider acquiring nuclear weapons. The memory of having nuclear weapons used on South on 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 Japan is still a very real one in Japan, and the and public opinion is very strongly against acquiring nuclear weapons. I would also say that in Japan's case, I think the discussion about nuclear weapons is fundamentally more about China than North Korea. Um, in South Korea. There is more public support for acquiring nuclear weapons. Political support is still on the margins, mm -hmm. and there the focus is very much North Korea, much less so China. Both countries today, and this is important to emphasise, are a long way from acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, not technologically, as you point out, but politically, it would be a huge barrier to circumvent. Oh. Both from the perspective of domestic opposition, particularly within Japan, worries about sanctions and the international consequences of them doing so. I mean, international trade is key to both countries, and if they were to be sanctioned for proliferating, that would be incredibly dangerous to them. Um, partly because each country, you know, worries about what would happen to the non-proliferation regime as a whole. I mean, if I develop nuclear weapons and other countries develop nuclear weapons, am I less safe off as a result of sparking an arms race? And, and this is an important element, um, because of U.S. security guarantees. Uh, in both cases, the United States has um, 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 promised to defend both of those countries uh, from external aggression. Um, and um, both countries would have to reckon with the possibility that if they acquired nuclear weapons, the U.S. would drop right. the security guarantee to those countries, um, which would be a real security cost to them. Um, which would essentially guarantee they'd have to use nuclear weapons in any kind of war if the United States pulled the conventional support. Well, I mean, I, I, would, I think it would depend on the nature of the war. Yeah. I mean, it was still, I mean, you know, the fact that no country has used a nuclear weapon in anger since 1945, I think, demonstrates the, 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 the barrier to using them in any right. kind of conflict. But, um, you know, I, I, I would think that if the U.S. withdrew from Asia and just let South Korea and Japan and other countries in the region develop nuclear weapons, the risk of nuclear use would yep. go up. I, I, I would absolutely agree with that statement. But this is why, you know, this is why the president's remarks about encouraging proliferation in Asia, which he didn't so much walk back as just deny he ever said them, and his on-again, off-again attitude towards U.S. alliances is so concerning to many people in the foreign policy community. Because if there is a major loss of confidence amongst U.S. allies about the credibility of U.S. security guarantees, proliferation could be a consequence of that. Let me ask you about technology, because I, I have you and you're a physicist, so you're the perfect person to talk to. Uh, a question about dual-use technology, kind mm -hmm. of as a, as a parlay and a broader question about new enrichment technologies, because for the most part, the same way the Manhattan Project created the atomic bomb, we're using some similar foundational technologies with you know, gas centrifuge and other, other ways of enriching mm -hmm. uranium. The technology hasn't dramatically changed in the last 60, 70 years, and they're not that difficult to spot. I mean, gas centrifuge plants are pretty big. They're, you, know, you can hide them, but not hide them all that well. What about newer, more easily hidden 
enrichment technologies like things like laser isotope separation and some of the uh, dual-use technology that's making it much cheaper to have nuclear power, potentially much easier to develop nuclear weapons in secret. Um, so may- maybe we should start by talking a bit about what enrichment is. Yeah. Um, you know, there's two different... The uranium that you dig out in the ground consists of two different types of uranium. Um, you know, if, 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 if people think back to their high school chemistry, isotopes is, the, is, 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 is what I mean here, two different isotopes. But one of those isotopes is useful for building for nuclear fuel for power plants and, and nuclear weapons, and one of those isotopes is not very useful. And enrichment is concentrating the useful isotope and throwing away the less useful isotope. Um, it's certainly the case that when the, um, um, when the Manhattan Project was going on, the scale of the facilities you needed to enrich uranium was enormous. The enrichment plant at Oak Ridge, I believe, was the biggest building in the world at the time. And there's a famous story that the Danish physicist Niels Bohr, um, who was uh, persecuted by the Nazis, and there was this incredible escape where he was, I think the British uh, extracted him from Denmark and flew him to the US. And previously Bohr had predicted that a nuclear weapon would be impossible because you would have to turn your entire country into an industrial facility to build, to make the uranium. And when he was shown Oak Ridge, he said, see, I told you I was right. You did have to turn your entire country into an industrial facility. Um, that actually changed, though, in the, with the invention of gas centrifuge technology. Um, gas centrifuge technology, gas centrifuge facilities are much, much, much smaller, much lower footprint, much lower energy consumption than uh, gaseous diffusion that was the technology mm. used in the Manhattan Project. And detecting secret centrifuge plants has been one of the big challenges for the IAEA. And intelligence, actually, there has played a huge role. I mean, it's often claimed that um, the, uh, the MEK, uh, the Iranian opposition group, the Mujahideen al-Kak, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, revealed the existence of the Iran's gas centrifuge plant at Natanz. That's Truman that they made the first public announcement, but it's pretty well documented now that U.S. intelligence had briefed the IEA on the existence of that plant a few months before the MEK announcement. And it's pretty likely that U.S. intelligence leaked that data to the MEK uh, precisely to create... Because once the information was out there publicly, then could be investigated without burning the intelligence sources that provided it. Like, as I said, I mean, to be very clear about this, the fact that U.S. intelligence briefed the IAEA before the public announcement is very well documented. I'm more being speculative here on who gave the information to the MEK. Um, and w- but now moving... So, you know, I, I would argue that even today, secret gas centrifuge facilities are the proliferation risk that worry me the most. Okay. Question was, will that change in the future? And I think one of the concerns, there is a new technology of laser enrichment. I mean, it's not really a new technology. I mean, countries have been trying to get this to work for 20 or 30 years. Um, It had been proven a very difficult technology to get working on a significant scale. Um, Now there is General Electric Hitachi, a joint US-Japanese venture using technology originally developed in Australia. That project, there were very high hopes for it at one stage. Um, 
those hopes are a bit dimmed now, but the project, they haven't given up on it yet. Uh, the technology, I should say, is called Silex, S-I-L-E-X, Silex Laser Enrichment. One of the concerns about this technology is precisely that it would be even harder to spot than gas centrifuge mm -hmm. plants. Um, and that's one of the technological developments that I think worries me most in terms of you know, the future of proliferation. Casper knows all too well that our days are defined by how we spend our nights. But what if you could guarantee that every night was sated with slumber so that every day brimmed with brilliance? Casper was created because better sleep makes for better living. Casper's a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that size box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. Casper brings quality. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that just got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Casper also brings convenience. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Combine supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. And this isn't just on their own website. We're talking Amazon, Google reviews, all over the Internet. There's free shipping and returns to the United States and Canada. And you can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Designed, developed, and assembled in the United States. Today, you can get a $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spycast and using our code spycast. That's casper.com slash spycast and use the spycast code. Terms and conditions apply. Let me, let me ask you some specific countries. Uh, Iran, mm -hmm. of course, has been in the news lately, um, whether it's the Trump administration talking about the deal not being great or the passage of the deal from what now, it's almost two years now. Simple, straightforward question that has a very complicated answer, I'm sure. How well is the Iran deal working today? Uh, I think it's working on balance very well. Um, before the Iran deal, I would say, you know, if, if, if you think about scoring a touchdown as an analogy for building a bomb, before the Iran deal, Iran was in the red zone. Um, you know, it was one good play away from scoring that touchdown. Now, I would say Iran has been pushed back to kind of out beyond the 50-yard line. Um, it is. It would take Iran, the deal was designed so that it would take Iran at least a year to be able to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, in some idealized world, I would prefer if Iran was back in its own end zone. Um, you know, if it had no enrichment technology at all on its own territory and would have to develop everything again from scratch. That kind of deal was never politically feasible at all. Um, I think the deal that was struck, um, you know, which involved capping 
the number of centrifuges in Iran, the quantities of enriched uranium in Iran, the level to which Iran could enrich uranium, its centrifuge production infrastructure, um, its um, uranium mining and associated facilities, um, the deal imposed a, the most stringent verification regime in any country ever on Iran, at least the most stringent, I should be a bit more careful there, the most stringent regime ever agreed cooperatively. Mm. Uh, the regime we imposed on Iraq in 1991 was more stringent, but that was a bit of a different case. So, you know, I think it was a well-designed deal. And to date, the International Atomic Agency has said that Iran has implemented it faithfully. Um, there have been one or two occasions on which Iran produced more heavy water than it was permitted to, uh, and it then sold that heavy water on the international market. Um, I won't predict that... I can't predict that I can guarantee that Iran will choose to abide by this deal forever. Right. No, what I do believe is that this deal is much more likely to detect Iranian cheating than had the deal not existed. Do you think Iran's made a broader strategic calculation that it makes more sense for them not to build a bomb at this point? Well, I think, and it's hard to know, I think Iran wanted the option to build a bomb at short notice. I don't think it had ever made the political decision to build the bomb. I think it wanted the option to build the bomb. And Iran, I think, was aware that there were significant costs associated with building the bomb, um, you know, including potentially much greater economic isolation than it had ever faced previously. So I, you know... I think Iran has been willing to dial back its ambitions. I, I don't think you should look at a nuclear weapons program like an on-off switch, mm -hmm. that a country has a nuclear weapons program or it doesn't. I think historically when we look at nuclear weapons program, we see it's much more of a dimmer switch. You know, it's something that countries turn up or down over time. Iran has decided to turn down that switch for the time being. It hasn't decided to pull the entire switch out of the wall. Right. Um, so... You know, I, 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 what I would say is, faced with where we were back in um, 2015 when the deal was agreed, there were no perfect policy options then. You know, one had the option of agreeing to this deal as it had been negotiated, of trying to convince the rest of the world to put more sanctions on and get a better deal, which I think was very unlikely to succeed or attacking Iran, which I think at best could have slowed down the program by a small number of years, but couldn't have destroyed the program permanently. Given those three imperfect options, I think the deal was and remains the most likely route to succeed in preventing Iran from getting the bomb. Let me use your dimmer switch analogy. Let's, let's say we've convinced Iran to dim it down to four. The fear, of course, they use this term breakout, is that Iran will flip it back up to 11 right away. What, what's the, is the bigger fear that they'll put it up to five, then put it up to six, and then put kind of a sneak out versus a breakout scenario? I mean, is, is that covered as well in this Iran deal to be able to prevent kind of very basic kind of slow burn cheating versus a breakout. Breakout seems to be much easier to detect because you're going from zero to 60 instantaneously. But 
kind of a little bit here, a little bit there, talk about the heavy water production. That seems like something that could be hidden, perhaps, much easier than a major program. Well, there are kind of two main ways. Well, no, there's three main ways that Iran can cheat on the deal. It could simply renounce the deal and declare it null and void and go ahead and build a nuke. I think that's very unlikely because actually declaring that you know, the deal was null and void and you wanted a nuke would provide a perfect excuse for military action. I think it's very unlikely Iran would do that. The second way is um, at declared facilities that are inspected, you know, Iran could try and use them to build, uh, to, you know, it could try and divert nuclear material from those facilities to a, to, to, to a bomb building program. Um, I am very confident in the IEA's ability to detect even small um, misbehavior at declared facilities. I think the problem here is one of politics much more than it's one of uh, technology and verification. Um, you know, if there is a minor violation of the deal, will the states responsible for the deal be willing to enforce it? I think it's very important that even if there's minor violations, we enforce those minor mm -hmm. violations. We don't allow a pattern of creeping violations. Um, but I think the difficulty there is the politics rather than the detecting the creeping violation. I think if Iran does decide to cheat on the deal, the most likely way would be to, to build a secret facility somewhere. Now, it appears we have a pretty good record of detecting secret facilities in Iran. Um, you know, all of Iran's enrichment plants were originally intended to be secret facilities that then got outed. Of course, you don't know what you don't know. Someone can't categorically exclude the possibility that there are secret facilities we never detected. Um, I think this is the hardest verification problem. I think the deal significantly enhanced the IEA's ability to detect secret facilities, um, though it's not perfect. Um, and again, you then get the challenge of if you do detect something, are you actually willing to enforce the deal? Um, but actually, and that I would say is my, you know, my, my, my basic message here, that I worry much more about the politics of enforcement with Iran than I do about the actually detecting whether something happened. Yeah. Let's take a step back from the embryonic nuclear weapons programs and look at some of the old guard. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about modernization because a lot of that mm -hmm. words have been thrown around. Talking about the American nuclear weapons program, the Russians, the Chinese, these programs that have been around now for decades. The Obama administration had pushed very hard, and it looks like that, I assume that will be picked up by the Trump administration, to modernize nuclear, U.S. nuclear weapons. And some of these are pretty damn old at this point. I mean, uh, there are stories about... Um, many of the codes and the, the actual information being passed to the weapon silos themselves were on old, big floppy disks that most most people under the age of 40 wouldn't even recognize today. Um, and, you know, a lot of these weapons were designed back in the 60s and 70s that are still being used today. Does the U.S. modernization push make sense? I guess there's a multiple answers to that I, I, from a strategic standpoint, but also from is it necessary to do this just to keep command and control intact, to keep safety considerations intact? So I think as your question illustrates, modernization is a single word for a whole right. huge number of different things going on. You have the command and the control infrastructure, the delivery systems, the warheads themselves. Um, 
command and control modernization, I think, is relatively uncontroversial. You know, I, there are many people who oppose doing that. How you do it is more of a controversial issue. I mean, you mentioned the notorious floppy disks. Mm -hmm. And then, like, when I was a kid, we had five and a quarter inch mm -hmm. floppy disks. These were like eight inch floppy yeah. disks. I mean, these were even older than the five and a quarter ones. Um, so um, there is a serious point to be made, this is a slight tangent, but there is a serious point to be made that technology that old is really resistant to cyber threats. Right. And it is a major challenge in integrating new technology, which is inevitable, to try to do it in a way that is as cyber secure. And there is an idea now with new, uh, with, with some of the um, modernized nuclear weapons coming online that they should be networked. Personally, I think this is a horrible idea. It just seems but, like asking for it. Right. <laughs> but as I was saying, so you, know, you have modernization of the command and control infrastructure, the delivery systems, and the warheads. Even within one of those categories, there is a there's a whole series of choices to be made between are you merely trying to preserve existing capabilities versus all the way to developing militarily new capabilities. Um, and so almost everyone involved in this agrees with some aspects of modernization, and almost nobody supports every conceivable area of modernization you could do. You know, the question is, where along this spectrum are we going to end up? Um, you know, for my, for my part, I think there is very little benefit to new nuclear military capabilities. Uh, I'm broadly in favor of spending the money to keep the existing arsenal um, safe, secure, and effective. Um, I think there are some aspects of the modernization, however, that are wasteful. So, for instance, I think um, the new bomber, the B-21, is a good idea. I think it's a good idea to have a um, gravity bomb, the modernized B-61, to be delivered by that. But the new cruise missile, nuclear-armed cruise missile, I don't support. I, I think it's wasteful to have both a cruise missile and a gravity bomb for the same bomber. And it seems land-based missiles make no sense whatsoever anymore just because of how vulnerable they are to well, first strike, especially with the submarine-based systems, which are so good. I... I think that's that's going to. I think this is going to be the big debate about modernization: is what to do with the ICBMs. Yeah. Uh, I'm I am broadly skeptical of the ICBMs. I wouldn't pull them up out of the ground, uh, but I think I would look for ways to try to extend the existing system because you know it's uh, tens and tens of billions of dollars to build the new ICBMs. Um, there will be people who will make the argument in favor of those. Um, you know, there is something and within the nuclear community, I just have to say two words, and everyone will know what I'm talking about, called the sponge argument. And the argument is this. The U.S. has relatively... If you took away the ICBMs, uh, you know, the land-based missiles that are based in... Uh, North Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. Um, there would be very, very few targets in the U.S. Let me let me pause. People in those states want to close their ears right now because this is not going to be a fun conversation for them. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> there would be if you took away those weapons, there would be very, very few targets left in the U.S. So the fear is that you know in a nuclear war with Russia or China just by landing a few nuclear warheads on the U.S. You know, you could destroy um, Washington and the political infrastructure and the submarine bases 
and you know, really damaged the U.S.'s ability to retaliate. Um, even if the submarines at sea were survivable, um, you, could, you, could, you, could, you could decimate a lot of the mainland U.S. warfighting infrastructure with just a few nuclear weapons. The argument is that the ICBMs in those three states are a sponge to suck up an adversary's nuclear warheads so that in order to disarm, you know, the US, an adversary would have to put large numbers of nuclear weapons on the U.S. itself. Now, the funny thing is the biggest support in, the, in, in Congress for ICBMs comes from the senators from right. Wyoming, Montana, and, South, and North Dakota. What was the money that goes in because they are, them? And, yeah. You know, these are, these are three states where the military bases in those states are a quite significant contributor to the economy as a whole. Um, you know, for me, I think even explaining the sponge art, I, I find it hard to explain that argument with a straight face. Right. I have very little sympathy for that argument. Right. But that is, a, that is a completely deadly serious argument made in favor of maintaining ICBMs. Let, let me shift to strategy itself. I think there's a lot of debate now about no first use and whether the United States, we've never had it, we've always had a kind of calculated ambiguity is a <laughs> word they like throwing around, this idea of, we don't take it off the table, but we're not going to kind of tell you whether we're going to do it or not. So there's a push to talk about no first use. And I've always found this interesting because, and then we're going to get a little wonky here, the idea of counterforce strategy, which has kind of been the hallmark of not annihilating cities, but actually going after, let's call it Russia for this case, Russian nuclear weapons on the ground kind of necessitates a first use. Um, because if, you, if you're attacking second, there's nothing left to to shoot on the ground. Does this change our broader policy with things like launch on warning, which is absolutely insane? Um, are, are we in a position now where no first use is a legitimate way of doing business? It's, we've been doing it otherwise for 70 years. Um, <clears throat> or are we in a position where we need to keep on doing what we're doing? I'd like like, New START really made a difference, I think, in kind of reducing nuclear weapons, but now it sounds from the last two days that President Trump is rethinking about New START and whether or not to pull out of it or, or do it. I, I know I'm throwing a lot at you here. I, you know, broader nuclear strategies in the news today, and I want yeah. to see if you had any insight into how that's going. Well, and I can't, <laughs> and I can't tell you my surprise yeah. when, in the first of the presidential debates, I think it was, the candidates were asked about no first use. I mean... I think you would have got odds of a thousand to one that that question was going to come up. But no, you're right. You know, broader nuclear strategy is in the news today. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ideas you just put on the table. I know, sorry. Launch on, no, 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 I'm very, ha very happy to deal with it. Launch on warning, counterforce, no first use. Um, let's, let's kind of walk through these issues no. one by one. Let's deal with the big one firstly, no first use. The argument... Your position on no first use largely depends on your view of American conventional power. Um, I mean, to be clear, no first use involves saying we will only use nuclear weapons if someone else has used them for, right. first. So no first use allows you to do a nuclear response to a nuclear attack. That is a policy that the U.S. has never adopted. In the Cold War, largely because the Soviet Union was conventionally superior, and so NATO involved, NATO had to hold out the threat of using nuclear weapons first, it believed to deter the Soviets. Right now, the US 
it's inconceivable to me today that the US would ever use nuclear weapons first because of US conventional superiority. The question, though, is how long you think US conventional superiority will last for. Uh, and in particular, not so much globally, but in regional contexts, and in particular in the West Pacific and Northeast Asia. You know, maintaining conventional superiority close to the Chinese coast is going to be a very, very difficult thing in years to come. And even if the U.S. remains globally dominant, China could, you know, it's likely to be, it, it is possible it could be very difficult to prevent China becoming locally dominant in the West Pacific. And if China does become locally dominant, does the U.S. then need to hold out the option to use nuclear weapons first? That, that's kind of, I think, mm -hmm. where the center of the discussion is. My personal view about this is I do worry about the loss of conventional superiority over the long run. But I also think that U.S. current policy, which talks about defending vital interests, is too broad. My personal view is the U.S. should say we would only use nuclear weapons to counter an existential threat to ourselves or our allies. That only if the very existence of us or our allies was under threat right. would we use nuclear weapons, which is narrower than it currently is, but is a bit more allowed than no first use. Yeah, but you could see a potential future where China has developed an area denial weapon to keep our carrier battle groups out of the South China Sea or the Taiwan Straits, and then it looks like the existential uh, the, uh, the uh, existential threat to Japan or Taiwan or others would require, let's say, a first use. I'm not advocating it, but right. I can see that. No, that, no, no, but that's that's that's. I would rather say might require first yeah. use, but yeah, that's that's the argument that um, 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 the that if the U.S. were losing a conventional war and say the very existence of Taiwan was under threat because otherwise it would be absorbed by China, that that's the one circumstance in which I would say the U.S. should keep the option open of using nuclear weapons first. President would, at the time would have to decide the pros and cons of it, but when there is the threat to the very existence of a state. Um, then uh, you brought up launch on warning. Mm -hmm. So the idea there is that um, currently U.S. land-based missiles are configured so that if the U.S. detects incoming nuclear warheads and policy calls for something called dual phenomenology, so the incoming attack has to be detected with two different physical means of detection. In practice, that means both space-based detectors to detect the missiles on launch and land-based radars to detect mm -hmm. the warheads in flight. Then the president has the option, again, this is just an option, it's not like a requirement, the president has the option to use nuclear weapons before those are destroyed. One of the things the Obama administration wanted to do was to enhance the survivability, I think, of command and control in particular so that the president would be under no pressure to do that. So that, I don't think the, their idea was so much to remove the option of launch on warning, but to ensure that the president would never feel pressure to launch on warning, right. that the US could ride out an attack and the force and the command and control infrastructure would be survivable enough that it could then respond after the event. You're trying to take away the, the old-fashioned PSYOP where it's just launch everything you got. Right, and, yeah. and, that was, and that was the first, I mean the PSYOP is the single integrated operations plan. Um, 
you know, you're a nuclear historian. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I broke my own rule of not actually spelling out acronyms here and and assuming people knew. You know, the first PSYOP from 1964 was um, a single gigantic launch of everything you had against the entire Sino-Soviet industrial bloc. Um, So, um, and, and, you know, quite possibly preemptively. So, you know, I, I think creating ensuring the force and the command and control infrastructure is survivable enough so that the president president wouldn't need to launch on warning, I think is just a complete common sense policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then targeting policy. You know, the question is, if you use nuclear weapons, what are you going to hit? Right. And people have the impression that the goal of nuclear weapons is to blow up cities. That is both correct and incorrect. The US, U.S. policy is not to deliberately target civilians. Um, and indeed, I presume, I've never seen the war plans, they are, they, are, you know, I, they, are, they are extremely secret, but I presume that some U.S. warheads in a war against, say, Russia would be devoted against Russia's nuclear forces, isolated silos in Crimea, or, uh, Crimea sorry, Siberia, <laughs> Siberia, not, not, I misspoke there. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the U.S. has never said that it would only, you know, uh, the, I can go be more explicit. U.S. targeting policy has talked about things like national leadership or war-supporting industries. Right? National leadership tends to be in capital cities. So an attack against national leadership, if that were to happen, and again, I'm pretty certain this is not a something that would automatically happen, right. This would be an option that would be presented to the president in the event of a nuclear war. Um, But an attack against enemy leadership would cause enormous amount of collateral damage. So, and similarly, you know, wars are key industries that could be targeted in a nuclear war. Again, they tend to be near where people live. You can't really build an industry away from where people live. So... That's why I say it's both, you know, the U.S. may not deliberately target civilians, but there would be options in the war plan that could lead to catastrophic levels of civilian casualties. Um, And, you know, targeting policy is a bit less discussed because it's very secret, so one one doesn't really know what is done with it. But it's a fascinating issue. And again, this links into no first use. It's certainly the case that if the Russians launched a huge, large-scale first strike, there's not much point doing counterforce because ma- much of what you would hitting would be empty. Right. On the other hand, if the Russians did a limited first use, one could argue counterforce targeting would make sense. Now, I'm not a big fan of counterforce targeting because I think the fact that we might hit Russian weapons give Russia an incentive to use those weapons before we hit them you get these use-or-lose dynamics. It's something that Tom Schelling called crisis instability, arising from the reciprocal fear of surprise attack. Um, and so, you know, these, these are really... I mean, they're really difficult questions. Um, you know, my, my, my belief is that the purpose of nuclear weapons is to inflict pain if we ever got to that awful situation of having to use them, to force an adversary to back down. I think the least incredible thing to target would be the other side's conventional war fighting forces. Not civilians, not nuclear forces, but conventional war fighting forces. This is like, you know, this is like, these issues are like, 
the issues that nobody in the nuclear community agrees with. Right. These are the things that everyone ends up shouting at one another about 11 o'clock at night over beers. Well, there's a lot of smart people thinking about this, and hopefully it'll, it'll just be a, uh, an academic experience. We'd like to thank our newest member of the SpyCast family, Casper. Remember, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com spycast and using the code SPYCAST. That's casper.com SPYCAST. Use the code SPYCAST to get $50 toward any new mattress purchase. We really appreciate you taking the time uh, talking to us today. James Acton is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. James, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at SPYCAST. I appreciate you coming over. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on SPYCAST. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. <laughs>